Australia have thought it best to send the Night Watchman out. Welcome to this special bonus episode of the Night Watchman podcast. I'm John Hotton, and last month I was joined by two of our greatest writers, Tom Holland and Sebastian Foulkes, for a discussion about cricket and literature. You may remember Tom's appearance on the debut Night Watchman pod. His most recent book is Dominion, which examines the influence of Christianity on Western culture, and as you'll hear, that most certainly includes cricket. Sebastian is one of our most beloved novelists, the author of Birdsong and most recently Snow Country, and who has spent much of his non-writing life playing cricket, occasionally, as he reveals, against some genuine legends of the game. We were recording in front of a live audience at the home of our sponsors Rathbones, without whom we couldn't bring you the Night Watchman podcast, so a huge thanks to them for all of their support throughout this series, and do check them out on the socials. All of the details are at the end of the podcast, and thanks again for listening. Yeah, well, as you know, I think we're going to have a general conversation about cricket with two extraordinary writers and equally extraordinary cricketers. Um, <laughs> you, I could queue them up as writers with their, their latest books, which I think there are some copies of behind you as well to have a look at later. Um, Tom's is Dominion, which is, with admirable ambition, a history of the effects of Christianity and the impact of Christianity on modern thought. And uh, Sebastian's Snow Country, which is the second in his Austri- planned Austrian trilogy. If I'm um, spared, John. <laughs> well, we come on to that because <laughs> the extraordinary cricketing part uh, of Sebastian's life has just come to a close with his retirement um, from playing. Um, but it wasn't many, in the papers, was it? It wasn't. <laughs> it's yeah, many runs were scored. It's been all many over the WhatsApp group, though. It has. And I'm duty-bound and contractually bound at this stage. So he did once hit Gary Sobers for four. Well, I thought we'd come to that later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we will tell that story later. And John, do you have any other anecdotes involving Test cricketers no, and members I of the don't. <laughs> Maybe and we'll come to that. Maybe later. we'll come to Tom's extraordinary achievements, which include hitting his first and only six, and <laughs> dismissing Matthew Hoggard uh, and Andrew Caddick. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we've got quality on the stage, is what I'm trying in my roundabout way say and to to sort of start us off in the, in the in the right areas bowl some good areas i thought taking a cue from each of these books and uh, was first of all to to go to tom and to say you know, history in the written history of cricket can we believe it how accurate is history well john um <laughs> I, I mean if very if i could very selfishly just there is one mention of cricket in dominion um and that, in, that, that, I think, is a, a key historical moment. It's the Pilgrim Fathers, uh, and they have sailed across the sea, and they have landed at Plymouth Rock, and it's their first Christmas, uh, and they're going out to have a prayer amid the snow and the bleakness and the wind of the Massachusetts December. Um, but they've brought over with them some people who are not quite as uh, committed to the good Lord as the Pilgrim Fathers themselves are. And they come back from their prayer meeting to discover to their horror that these uh, fellow travellers who've come over with them um, in the Mayflower are playing cricket, which seems, I mean, hugely impressive commitment to the summer game to be playing it uh, in the middle of December. But there it is. And the Pilgrim Fathers are so appalled that they confiscate both bat and ball, thereby setting America on a downward spiral, (laughs) (laughs) which clearly it has never really recovered. 
I strongly suspect that story isn't true, but it was so good and it was my only opportunity to include cricket that I put it in. Um, and I think that, it, I mean, I'm sure we'll discuss this more generally, that the blurring of the line between fact and fiction in cricket, I mean, even on the level of, you know, if you're talking about your own performance, perhaps to people who weren't at the match, um, <laughs> there may be a certain blurring of reality. But I think that, that um, John, as you suggested, one of the things that makes cricket really, really distinctive as a sport is that actually its origins are kind of lost in the yeah. mists of time in a way that perhaps isn't true, say, of tennis or rugby uh, and maybe even football. Um, the, the origins of cricket are very mysterious. And I think what makes them more mysterious is the fact that um, cricket is so kind of... Anglophone. It's so distinctive to 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 the British to, to Britain and then to the British Empire overseas yeah. That, yeah. that it it kind of prompts you to wonder. Well, was there something distinctive about England that generated cricket, a sport that seems to have been much less kind of transmissible than, say, football, which would be the obvious parallel. Yeah, and and its relationship to language in many ways. Um, you know, cricket is a. It, is a is a described game, isn't it? You know, we're, when we're learning about cricket, we turn to the literature of cricket to understand it and to give us a way through it. Um, Sebastian, I'll turn to you and cue you in now because, uh, as a as a representation in writing, cricket is a thing, isn't it? I know in several of your books you've turned to cricket um, and used it either directly or indirectly. Um, yeah, I mean, my interest in cricket is. Uh, Partly the physical battle and the joy of smiting the ball far over the sight screen and square cutting and hooking and pulverising. It's a very aggressive physical game, cricket. People who don't play and who talk about cucumber sandwiches and people in whites, it's not really like that when you're out there. There's a guy with a hostile look in his eye and a red face who's holding this thing down as hard as he can and trying to kill you. And you're trying to hit it so hard back into his face that he may never bowl again. It's a very violent competitive game. Um, but what makes it so interesting is um, that uh, it's the most individual gladiator gladiatorial game there is. As much, really, I mean, if you think of Wes Hall bowling to um, Colin Cowdery or Shane Warne bowling to Kevin Peterson, you know, there, there's that one-on-one -on -one gladiatorial to the death fight, which you'd have to go to the sort of Wimbledon Centre Court to equal. But it has five more dimensions because your gladiatorial victory over Shane Warne means nothing if your team doesn't mm. win. And it's over five days and it's like chess as well. And it can, you know, it's this combination which makes it so remarkable and so interesting. But I mean, just to go back to what Tom was saying, I mean, uh, it's very remarkable too that it should be, have been an English invention when you come to think of the fact that we can only play it for a few days every year. <laughs> um, we, we, the authors were in uh, India not long ago in Rajasthan and we played a little village in a desert and they were very good and they thrashed us as most teams do, especially in India. And I was talking to one of the young guys over tea and I said, um, what time did you get up this morning to, in order to be free to play this afternoon? He said, oh, I got up at six. He, had, he was a small farmer. He'd done his work by 12, so he was able to come and play. And I said, um, how often do you play? And he said, maybe about four times a week. And I said, how many weeks a year? He said, oh, all year. There is no close season. No wonder they beat there us. is no close <laughs> season in Rajasthan. I mean, it's pretty amazing, that, yeah.
yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, when you've when you've come to use cricket in your fiction, mm -hmm. and you've done it in several ways, you know, comedically with your Woodhouse novel, yeah, uh, and in um, a completely different way in, in uh, yeah, in where my heart used, used to be, yeah, where you used it. As yeah. a, you, well, well, you explain explain how and why you you chose to use it. I, well, in the in the Woodhouse book, um, the, which is called. Um, well, how was it called? Jeeves, Jeeves and the Wedding Bells, it was called. It was a sort of knockoff, or tribute, as we call it, to P.G. Woodhouse. And at the invitation of his family, all completely kosher, incredibly good fun to write, and I wanted a big set piece, and I thought, what better than a cricket match? Because, um, as we all know, cricket is usually very badly portrayed. Um, in films, particularly, you see some guy panting in who's supposed to be the village fast bowler, and he bowls like this. Really, and someone's supposed to be the princely batsman, you sort of like that. I mean, yeah, come on. Yeah. Um, but in, in books, it's been a bit better done, but it, never very well done, I think. So I thought there was, there was scope to do a, a really good, exciting cricket match, but thoroughly comic, using some of P.G. Woodhouse's characters and some of my own, and uh, based with a lot of in-jokes with, you know, various things happening, which had happened in the various village knockabout teams I played for over the years. So that was that. Um, and I, I, I was reading it the other day, actually. I, I, quite often, if I need falling asleep, I read my own book. <laughs> <laughs> now we know. <laughs> um, but in, in um, Where My Heart Used to Beat, there's a, a, a rather naive Englishman who's found himself um, drawn into working for the Special Forces during the Second World War in France. And owing to an administrative accident, he finds himself, after he's been taken captive by the Germans, finds himself in Auschwitz, which, which could happen, it were very unusually, but it could be that regular prisoners of war got, would get sent to these extermination camps, really just by mistake. And the German administration was obviously pretty good, but it, it could happen. And anyway, while he's in there, one night when he's trying to fall asleep in this dormitory when everyone has typhus and is dying and being murdered and is you know, queuing up to be exterminated, he tries to think of a better world. He tries to think of a more orderly world, uh, which has both the sort of randomness of life and its life's unfairness and its inexplicable nature, but also something philosophically quite reassuring and as though there is a shape and a purpose and so on. So as he's lying there, he sort of relives uh, some of his time, particularly um, in... Actually, this is an impossible life. I'm sorry, I've got the wrong book, an impossible life. He, he relives particularly um, <clears throat> an innings he'd played um, in, in Devon underground... Um, which I played in quite often called Kilmington, which is a beautiful pitch, very flat, huge cedar tree in the corner. And he remembers walk coming down and striking the ball, and it's a very bright sunlit day, and as the ball hits the blade of the bat, he can see the risen seam actually make a mark in the soft willow of the bat. Um, it's a long time since my eyesight's been good <laughs> enough to register that, but I, I do believe I did see that once uh, one day in Worcestershire on a, on a lovely sunny day. But I think that's another thing that I like particularly about cricket, the, its reconciliation of the, the cruelty of life, the randomness. You don't get another chance. It's like in tennis, if you serve a double fault, you're out. What? No second chance, that's it? Uh, but, but over the day, over the three days, over the five days, you do get a sense of order and something philosophically rather reassuring. Yeah, yeah. The Night Watchman podcast is brought to you by Rathbones Investment Management for individuals, charities and financial advisors. We couldn't do it without them, so please head over to rathbones.com to find out more about what they do.
Tom, I was just going to turn to you at this point. I don't want to derail you on that thought, no, Sebastian, but <laughs> because I want to come back to that and the psychic terrain of the game, which I think is you know, mostly where cricket is played and mostly played in the mind. Um, but Tom, there, there came a moment, I think, and, and this touches on Dominion, in, where the course of cricket, certainly in England, changed. And I'm thinking of the Victorian imposition of a kind of moral order and code upon the game which before then it didn't have, you know, it was a, a, a rural game, a game of rogues, a game of cheats, a game of gambling, yeah. and all of these wonderful things. And the Victorians came along, and they, through sort of this kind of muscular Christian yeah. idea, imposed their own morality on the game that we, that we still live with today, that cricket will almost, and its representations in fiction perhaps, will guide you in a certain way. You will understand about character if I tell you how he plays cricket. Yeah. And I wondered kind of how sort of ballpark true that is. Well, again, I mean, you were, you were talking about the kind of the mysteries of cricket's origins. And th th there are two kind of things that I think hang over in, into the present. One is that it, it originates in the countryside. Um, and that's a key part of, in, enduring part of cricket's image, I think. The idea that, um, you know, it's, it, 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 it's the England of spreading shadows on you know, country churchyards and all that kind of thing, country pubs, all that kind of stuff. Um, and the, the, the other thing is that it was viewed with huge, huge hostility by the moral establishment uh, when it began. So throughout the 16th, through into the 17th century, into the 18th century, it's seen as uh, pernicious because it's distracting people from going to church, it's encouraging them to gamble, um, all these kind of stories that you're always talking about. What is it, the, uh, the match of the... the, the the, the people with one arm against oh, the 11 yeah. of one leg. Yeah. That was um, a genuine game. It happened several times. <laughs> people had been injured in the, the Napoleonic Wars and were in the Chelsea, I think it was the Chelsea Hospital. But that sense... So, yeah, so they would have a sense of gr the grotesque and this is for our amusement. Yeah. Wouldn't it be yeah. funny? And, and that's yeah. also how it then gets imported into, into, um, into cities. So yeah. um, it's all these kind of lords who are hanging out in St. James's, sponsoring teams. And that's how lords comes to be built and, and, um, and the Oval. So the idea that cricket is, um, you know, it, it lends itself to gambling very, very easily. And uh, it's almost as though in, with the Victorian period, and this is something that happens um, in all fields of English life, so just looking at sport, I mean, it happens in boxing, rules are introduced, football, all kinds of things. The idea that you codify it and you moralise it and you make it suitable for the expression of, of a kind of moral English genius. This is the kind of the, the Victorian idea. And looking at cricket now, it feels like that that Victorian project was kind of like slapping plaster onto dry rot, <laughs> you know, that you, you lather it on. And it kind of disguises the fact that underneath it, the dry rot is still it's kind still of there, spreading. Yeah. Yeah. And in time, it kind of emerges through and you start to see the mushrooms coming through. And again, it feels, you know, at the moment that that whole Victorian ideal that cricket is a, a gentleman's game where gambling is anathema, that, that that is kind of going out the window now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, because, you know, just to say again, there's something about cricket that lends itself to obviously to kind of, you know, gambling and to... You know, if you bowl, will you bowl any no ball here? How many fours will you hit? All that kind of thing. Everything that made it uh, appealing to aristocratic gamblers in the in the 18th century, make it appeal, 
to, um, to, to you know to bookmakers in Dubai now. <laughs> so you think the 20th century was just a sort of gentlemanly aberration? Mind you, it wasn't that gentlemanly, I suppose, was it? Uh, well, I, yeah, but, but 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 Bodyline. The whole point about Bodyline was that it was seen as as not playing cricket. Yeah. Mm. You know, it wasn't. Yeah. You know, this wasn't the done thing. Uh, there only one. You know, only one team is out there playing cricket. Like, all that kind of stuff. I, I mean, it was. It had a long innings. It, you know, it's it's really kind of mid Victorian age. Uh, and I suppose that that really Grace is the kind of the paradigmatic figure who bridges both ages. Mm. Yeah, you know, all the kind of stories of, of him refusing to walk when he's been controversially bold middle stump and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, he becomes an emblem of how Victorian Britain likes to see itself, kind of solid, full of achievement. Um, you know, probably yeah. the most famous yeah, the famous, of his age, maybe the most, most famous man of his age. Could have been the most famous, most recognisable yeah. man of his age. I mean, age. he's still, if you think now, Grace is probably still the most recognisable cricketer yeah. in the country. You know, yeah. I mean, who, who else? But, you know, he, Joe he was, Root, that's but, he, sure. but he was but, the first, he was also the first person to get kind of sponsorship, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah, so but, he, but equally he was a figure, you know, who was looked down upon by the establishment. You yeah. know, he had, you know, again, rural roots and this high squeaky voice. And, quite a, you know, I was quite well, shocked to find even as far as the 60s, yeah. he was being described as an imbecile by the, M by the MCC. He was well, practically an imbecile, but a savant, you know. I, Astonishing, I, really. So, so, so cricket in the 18th century was a, a, a game that appealed to the upper classes, mm. the aristocracy, and to the rural labourers. Um, yeah. What happens in the Victorian age is that the middle classes step in and kind of moralise it. But there's still this great, and the division sort of exists in the game, doesn't it, between batsman and bowler. Yeah. And, you know, the bowler was, the, was the, the, the surf and the professional and the batsman was Tell the amateur. You know. <laughs> well, I was going to say to you, I mean, I mean, you know, the subject of Jesus, batsman or yeah, bowler, no. what would he, you know? He, well, you know, the last <laughs> shall be first. Uh, he was clearly a bowler. He would know. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sebastian, I was going to come back to that idea of the, you know, and it'll, it'll touch on what Tom's speaking about, this idea of the, you know, the, the psychic and or mental terrain of the game, mm -hmm. where it's played in the mind, especially for the batsman. You mentioned the cruelty of that one chance. Mm -hmm. And that if that goes on and on, if you're a professional for several weeks, as it is to Virat Kohli at the moment or something, this sort of intense and unique humiliation that, that cricket provides. Um, I'm making a link here. I mean, I mean, snow country and human traces are about the mind, aren't they? And it's yeah. a subject of interest to you. And I wondered what role cricket played for you, not in the writing of that, but in your own mind, your own thinking. How did you use cricket and how did you survey that terrain? Um, I'm not sure that um, I have a sort of particularly interesting answer to that. I mean, it's, uh, you know, cricket in my books is fairly uh, peripheral, ultimately. Um, but it has provided an enormous um, continuity of interest for me, you know, back in the days when I had a sort of rather tough jobs in newspapers or teaching and I would stagger home in the evening and uh, turn on the television and there was, you know, the BBC Two highlights, Richie Benno. It was a sort of incredible solve. It was sort of made you feel the world was somehow all right. Um, and I just found it so utterly fascinating as a small boy I used to pour over the, the, the Daily Telegraph every day would publish all the batting averages and all the bowling averages and I would read the stats and analysis of every single game in a completely sort of bonkers way. But mm. Lots of small boys did this and all the stats were available. And who, is anyone going to score a thousand runs in May? Mm. Oh, there's this bloke in Worcestershire who's getting close and then uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it was all quite bonkers, really. Um, but, uh, of course, 
it isn't really an English game at all anymore, is it? No, I mean, no. it's, it's an Indian game first and foremost. And um, I don't know that, I mean, somebody's going to, if, if not, it might as well be me, say, I'm wondering how much longer county cricket can go on. I, never, I don't really bother to read the reports anymore. I'm sorry to say whether that's I'm getting old and losing interest or whether that's because the game has changed. But it doesn't seem to me a matter of tremendous moment now whether Middlesex beat Yorkshire or not. That's a bad thing to say, isn't it? Well, I don't think it is because I think, you know, it depends what your relationship with the game is and what your relationship with county cricket is. I mean, I think the, it's, it's like the Ravens and the Tower, isn't it? The reassurance that it's there means... Okay, you don't know necessarily how Worcester are getting on at the moment or something, but you're happy that it's there. And I yes, think this is what people this is why people feel so strongly about county cricket, is that it's in the fabric of life in this I country. I would go. If you asked me to uh, Laws to see Yorkshire and Middlesex in a county game, I would go, but I wouldn't go to see a hundred game. No. I wouldn't go to see a hundred game because I don't think that those teams have any identity. Because they don't have, a, I mean, obviously the identity of in football, you know, Manchester, Chelsea, Arsenal, none of these people come from there anyway. So that's long gone. But in, in cricket, you, you could think until recently that most people did come roughly from the county they were representing. But the 100 is just, I, who cares? Well, Tom, you, you, you had a, a I resolution. Had strong views on this. I had very strong views. <laughs> well, Tom, before the 100 launched, had a solution that he pitched oh. to the ECB. And and it, this was the moment somehow. where I knew that English cricket was ruined, when they turned down this, ge I said myself, genius idea. Because, of course, um, there are identities that are even older than some of the counties, um, and these are the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, um, which England was divided up into. Uh, and if you think of Wessex playing against Mercia or the East Saxons or Northumbria, um, I, I just thought it was a great, great idea that I very selflessly and generously offered to the ECB, and they completely ignored it. And it came <laughs> out, it had such a catchy name as well. What was it? The, uh, was it the Athelstans? Was that uh, the, no, I no, think no. it was the Heptarchical Cup. <laughs> that's, that's right. Strange, how did that? How did that? Yeah. I mean, st look, talk about staring a gift horse in the mouth. I mean, imagine. Yeah, crazy. But let, let, let's let cricket and the amateur is something you, you touched on with, your, with, with, with Woodhouse tonight. I would see if cricket's an iceberg, the professional game is just the sort of ten percent that's above the surface. Most of cricket is amateur cricket, and this is where the sort of the the, the, the game heart beats, whether that's in India or here or whatever, it's mostly about that. And I mean, is the amateur experience remotely comparable, do you think, to the professional experience? As someone who's had his own benefit year, <laughs> perhaps you're uniquely placed to tell us. Well, you know, when, when Andrew Caddick gets bowled by Shane Warne or when he gets bowled by me, he's out, <laughs> isn't he, John? Um, so to, to that extent, I guess it's the fundamentals are the same. But obviously the... Um, <laughs> When, when you are up close to the professional game, part of the excitement of, of watching it live is realising just how terrifyingly brilliant they are and how you know, it's operating on a different planet, certainly to, to most of the people that I've played with. Um, and yet, but, but, and yet and, I suppose, and yet the, I suppose the, the link is not in how well you play the game, but the notion of these archetypes that exist in cricket and that exist in both the amateur and the professional game you know the princely batsman, the uh, you know the nuggety wicketkeeper, the fast bowler with long hair and a moustache. These representations. Yeah, I, I, I think. I mean, I think that professional cricketers have become so professional 
mm. over the past maybe two or three decades. I mean, they're so fit now. The catches that they pull off are so unbelievable, the speed with which they can run. The, 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 the shots, the wickets, everything that they do is so kind of intense now that it does seem to have gone to a different stage. When I began watching it, it was full of, you know, reassuringly, you know, frankly, fat batsmen yeah. um, <laughs> in the first-class game, and and people who who, you know, ran like I did in the field and who dropped catches and all that kind of stuff, and it, it did, pr I think, when provide a certain sense. Did any of them wander out of position because they were looking at Twitter? <laughs> no, none of them ever did that. But you occasionally you'd see you'd see. Uh, you know, Phil Tufnell, who was obviously not suited yeah. to fielding, I, I always identified with him very strongly. I, I, I suspect that the, I mean, with, uh, Louise was saying earlier on about this sort of various ch charity games that we've played in, the course of which, you know, I've, we have bumped into people like David Gower and all these test sculpts that Tom has accumulated. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've, I've, lots of professional cricketers have even played with a few and so on. And I, I think that actually, although... Of course, the level of skill is off the scale, and although it had the game has changed, and they become super fit. I do think that in the dressing room, um, they do have um, the archetypes that we have. There's the sort of batsman who is interminably in. The <laughs> <That's> <laughs> who are you thinking the, of? The guy who's always run out. That's me. Uh, you know, and the guy who thinks he's a better bowler than he is. And you just, if you ever get a chance to chat to any of these people, it's quite clear that they have a lot of ribbing in the dressing room and chain worn and, you know, they all write biographies and autobiographies and uh, books and, I mean, Simon Hughes I've played with and if you read his books, I mean, it's just endless piss-taking of the yeah. bowlers, Norman Cowans and the three degrees and all that, you know, in slightly dubious taste perhaps, yeah. but, you know, they are, I, I don't believe there is this massive cultural difference. I mean, obviously the skill difference is something else. I think it has changed though. I mean, I think that the Simon Hughes book, what was it, a lot of hard yakka, yeah. which was brilliant and, and, and did kind of make uh, Middlesex sound like a, a kind of village team. I, I think that that was a slightly different age because I think that it has, I mean, I, didn't, I don't know whether Simon Hughes would it was now. a rather beguiling picture with sort of Phil Edmonds on the mobile phone buying and selling yes, and mining yeah. shares <laughs> and things. Yeah. See, I, d I don't think that that would happen now. Mm. No, maybe not, maybe not. But that idea, I mean, Sebastian, you sort of began in journalism, didn't you? Um, yeah. And uh, this notion, I mean, back then it would have been writers like Frank Keating. Yeah, all and, you know, you, wonderful writer. Yeah, wonderful. yeah like f a fabulous writer, but very much a writer. Mm. You know, what, what happened and what Keating wrote, there was kind of this wonderful sort of semi-creation, I suppose started with Cardus, you know, who yeah. would, again, take the characters that he wanted to write about them and write what he wanted, and had that weird situation where the guys he was writing about then started to try and live up to what he was writing, <laughs> yeah. which would then indulge him together. And Keating was kind of the same, you know. He, he, well, he, what he loved was the county game. Yeah. And um, he loved, you know, Gloucestershire in particular, and his idea of a great cricket piece was to go down and interview a sort of 80-year-old Gloucestershire batsman who would remind him that when he was a small boy and he was getting a trial and he finally got into Gloucestershire second, he'd walk 14 miles before breakfast and realise he'd left his boots at home. <laughs> then he'd have to walk back and, then, and he wouldn't get to the ground until one minute before and then, you know, amazingly, he'd get picked for the county first team and then he'd get a trial and he had to walk yeah. to London. And it, yeah. it, it, was, it, it was the whole sort of glamour and romance of the county from the game up. Whereas you think of a writer like Jim Swanton, 
who I mean, he, he wasn't interested in any of that. He was very mm. top down. What his, his primary interest was in what school you'd been to <laughs> and how the MCC yeah. committee functioned and whether it was right to have another old Tarovian on it, just to balance. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. the, the, these are all different ways. And Arlott was somewhere in between, I suppose. I mean, he was a sort of country man, come from a more modest background. But I mean, he, I think his principal interest was actually in, in the way that the drama of the game sat in the countryside and in a sort of wider context, but he was much more focused on the ball by ball than either uh, Keating or um, Swanton. Yeah, yeah. Who was the Times writer who was always kind of getting stuck at Didcot Partway? Woodcock. Uh, yeah. No, it wasn't John Woodcock. He, he, he was. He cut. He covered Somerset. Alan and Gibson. Alan Gibson. Yeah. That's right. Because he, he, he would write cricket reports in which no cricket was mentioned yeah. at all. Yeah. It was all about the kind of... <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but, but I suppose this is, this is as much a kind of uh, a, yeah, a function of the change in journalism now that that doesn't yeah. happen and that you've got Twitter and uh, all the rest of it. But um, Yeah, when I, when I was at The Independent, when it started in 1986, um, they hired a guy called Martin Johnson who came mm. from the Leicester Mercury. And he was just a tremendous piss taker. Yeah. And I really, you wrote some good lines. I didn't like it at all. And I used to he complain to the sports editors. And I, I was very, in those days, I was really quite pious about cricket. <laughs> right, I believed right. it was a sort of life-defining yeah. endeavour. And I didn't want to read this smart-ass from Leicester. You know. <laughs> and I didn't really think he understood the game very well either. Yeah. But uh, anyway, he, he proved popular. So, yeah. And he went on to have a long and distinguished career. And anyway, he's now passed away. So um, <laughs> you're not no, speak, Nizzy Bonham Day. You're not gonna, yeah, him. not going to speak ill of him. But, um, but no, that, that sort of, what started us on that was that notion of archetypes and their, their representations and so on. I wonder how useful they are to writers generally, where they're almost a kind of shorthand, you know. Um, well, I think archetypes are useful to journalists, but not to, um, oh, yeah. so but not to novelists. <laughs> I mean, I think the whole point about writing a novel is you want to say to the a reader, you've never met anyone like this character before. You think you know this person, you don't. You've never met anyone like this. This woman looks familiar, but she's going to surprise you, throw you off balance fascinates you from first to last. And the stereotype, the archetype, and the cliche is your enemy in every paragraph, every sentence, and every word. Mm. But in journalism, I think that sometimes, if, for instance, you went to interview Vladimir Putin now, it might be, if you had two hours with him, it might be really helpful and illuminating for the reader at home if you could say, you know, after all we talked about NATO and history and so on, you know, what Vladimir Putin really reminds me of is the bloke in the pub who always loses his keys just outside so he doesn't have to be first into buy a drink. <laughs> and somehow, if you're dealing with larger-than-life figures in journalism, I think reduction to type is, can be really helpful for the reader. But it's a different thing but, 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 uh, I mean, archetypes work, and stereotypes even, work in comedy. Well, this so because he, in your yeah. PG Woodhouse, but John, I mean, you've talked brilliantly about um, the episode in ever decreasing circles, which I don't know. Well, yeah. how well many I mean, you remember I think, that, yeah. but, I, it, but, but, but I think well, I think it was a sort of broader point about um, cricket and the sitcom, in that yeah. that shorthand that, that you're talking about, it works perfectly because everyone who watches a, a long-term sitcom, Dad's Army, is another great yeah. example. You know, you exactly know how before they play start cricket. playing cricket, you know how Manor yeah. is going to play. You know how John LeMagirio is going to play. Yeah. And, yeah, and actually, the Dad's Army cricket episode, I, if you can find it on YouTube, it's really worth watching because Fred Truman's in it. And, uh, really? and he, plays, yeah, he, he, he plays 
they don't call him Fred Truman. They call him yeah. for some bizarre reason. Brian Stevens. Can you, you don't remember what he was called, do you? They call him yeah. something like F.S. Johnson or something. Yeah, at the end, doesn't it? Yeah, his back goes after he's got one ball yeah. to Mannering. So you kind of, but you all know that he's going to hit the winning runs and it's not going to be Mannering it. It'll be John Lemaire or whatever. An ever decreasing service, it's actually used as sort of tragedy comedy, isn't it's, it? Because, yeah. because there's a sadness to. But it's like a kind of trap, because in ever, the plot of Ever Decreasing Circles is that there's a, there's a kind of uh, Richard Briars, fusspot guy who. Well, now you would. Married you, to Penelope now, Wilton. But now you would. I mean, you say a fusspot guy, now you would say he's on the spectrum. He's on the or spectrum. He's slightly yes. OCD. Or yes, slightly. Back then he was just, you know, he was funny. You couldn't write a yeah. sitcom. I've just written, dear BBC, I've just <laughs> written a funny sitcom about. Someone with OCD, would you but, like but, that? But he was the classic British sitcom figure in that, that he had aspirations above his station and he had an estimation of his own yeah. ability that was above. So he, he organised everything in the village. Yeah. And then this smooth kind of Oxbridge public school guy moves in. Opens a hairdresser. Who's brilliant at everything. And Penelope Wilton kind of secretly fancies him. There's a kind yeah. of slight kind of sexual yeah. charge there. And uh, inevitably, the Richard Bryce character captains the local village cricket team. Not exactly just, he doesn't just ca- he organises I mean, yeah, the whole so thing. he paints the school he board out, and he mows the lawn and he does absolutely everything He rather about. fantastically sends out postcards for availability. So <laughs> he sends you a postcard and you tick whether you're available or not and mail it back to him, which is beautiful. But the ge- I mean, the genius is that you know what's going to happen. Yeah, And do. the inevitability of what's going to happen is a kind of trap that... Yeah, Richard Braz cannot escape. No, that's because of true. course he, you know the, the guy turns out but the, to be brilliant. The, I suppose the slightly odd thing is the guy who plays the hairdresser. I can't think of his name, the actor's name. Peter but Egan. Peter Egan, but he's a dead ringer for Phil Edmonds. He looks exactly <laughs> like <laughs> So you kind of watch that after you go, that's sort of strange. And as you said earlier, when you see, you know, actors who patently can't play mm. cricket, Phil Edmonds, as I think of him, but Peter Egan. Patently can't, even though they send him out with, the, I think, a jumbo bat, which at the time was like the bat to have. You know. um, and Bryce has actually looked half decent. He gets caught on the boundary, but he actually plays a half decent shot. Mm. Tragic. But, but the, you know, so, so that's yeah. an, a further meta dimension. Uh, there is. <laughs> layer upon layer. Of this, yes, uh, we, at a rather nerdy school, we, we used to um, think which, what kind of performers the characters in Homer would be. So, you know, that Achilles. is a nerdy school. Oh, wow, Sebastian, that's classy. <laughs> Achilles would be a very sulky number yeah. three, throw his bat down if he didn't make a hundred. Odysseus, obviously, back of the hand both ways. Yeah. yeah. But, it, but what, what I, was, I was sort of coming around to asking you was, this was something we touched on, we did this talk as a Zoom originally, and uh, you told the story of your abandoned novel about oh. a cricket team and the reason that it was abandoned. And I think that's really interesting in writing terms as to how that situation came about and why it was abandoned. Well, I, thank you. I, I don't think it's that interesting, but I mean... I cling to that for my own failure of um, writing a cricket novel. No, it was, uh, when I was trying to write novels in my 20s, I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. and I didn't really think I was ever going to be any good at it or ever manage one. So I thought, well, what do I know about? What do I love? Cricket. Okay, I write a novel about cricket. Fine. And then... So I invented two teams, uh, big village teams, big rivals. Can you um, remember what they were called? No. Um, and so I went into great details about the first 11 on each side. And then, of course, they had, each had the wife or girlfriend. Uh, this, was long, you know, this was a long time ago, but none of them were gay. And then there were the two umpires and various other things. So basically, I had um, 
40, for about 48 major characters. <laughs> now, you don't have to read a lot of books to know 48 major characters is, is a lot. That's a big problem in a novel. And how you, you know, I just didn't really know how to do it at all. But I just thought if I wrote in very dreamy, poetic prose and, and made the match itself very exciting, people would... After about 800 pages in, I thought, this is very, very complicated. Does it, does it still exist anywhere? No, I'm afraid. Uh, I, I did give it to a, uh, a literary agent. It was called A Change of Pace, and, um, which I thought was it's quite a good title, actually. It's quite a good title. And I submitted it under the assumed name of J.J. Smith. I don't know why I picked that name. But um, he, it didn't get very far. It came whistling back from various didn't publishers. It didn't trouble the scorers. It didn't trouble the scorers. And eventually I um, destroyed it. I, had it. I humanely put it down into the waste paper. But isn't, I mean, isn't there a sense in which the idea of writing a cricket novel highlights why sport is so brilliant? That the whole point of sport is you don't actually know what's going to happen. Whereas, yeah. in a sense... Because a novel is written, I mean, as a reader, you know that it's all been, you know, the, the, the plot exists. And so the chance for some dramatic surprise is therefore diminished. I mean, the, thinking about, you know, the, the famous Ben Stokes century and that, mm. that victory, you would never believe that if it was written in a novel. You wouldn't. And equally in a novel, you wouldn't want to write a kind of damp squib yeah. where it turned out they were 100 for three. I suppose you might if you were writing kind of miserable, Maybe. depressing, <laughs> Maybe. kind of psychological novel Maybe. or something. But, but I, I suppose, I mean, as, as the, what were you described by the Times? A leading, leading English, a leading cricketer. English yes. cricketer. Yeah. I wanted to, to talk Le a little... Leading edge. Yeah. <laughs> Just leading. Nathan, I think it was a leading English cricketer. <laughs> uh, this, you've created your own myth around your cricketing career. <laughs> um, <laughs> And most of it is centred around Homer one. I am to my own Achilles, <laughs> as Sebastian might put it. A lot of it, a lot of it, is hinged on your your use of social media. Yeah. And I want to talk a, bit, a little bit about. We've talked about ancient myths, modern myths, and the way Twitter creates these modern myths. There is no greater modern myth than the six you hit. <laughs> However, yes, we should uh, explain. People have no idea what John is talking about. That, that in our very first season. Um, uh, I was going to retire, uh, and I went to play this last match, and it was in drizzle and rain and awful. Um, and somehow, I hit a six, and then I got out. And the brilliant thing about this six was that we had a, 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 a guy who wanted to become a professional sports photographer who was there, and he, he snapped, took three snaps of me hitting this six. And I suddenly realized, I just joined Twitter at this point, and I thought, and up to this point, I'd been very kind of po-faced in my attitude to Twitter, kind of, oh, I see there's an interesting novel just being reviewed in the Times or something. And that was the level at which I was at. And it suddenly dawned on me, I could just put this photo out and I could put it out again and again. And, and so again. it went and again and <laughs> again. Believe me. Uh, and it, I, think, I think it became probably... Uh, I, I would most How many times did you tweet it in the first day? I, I've forgotten. I mean, <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of times. And it's ended up in... The Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, impressively, the Times of India. Uh, I mean, just the global press. It's a meme. I, I, I would say that it's probably... A MILF. A MILF? <laughs> oh, sorry, something else. Sorry. A gilf. A gif. A gif. A gif. A gif. Something like that. I was just looking up tractors. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But it's much more exciting than a MILF. Something like that. Um, I, 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 would, I would suggest it's probably... Really? 
it's probably um, uh, by any non you know, amateur batsman, it's probably the most reproduced photograph of a shot by a. You think, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it, it's the only six I've ever hit. And yet, this, this, the, the genuine story of the early part of your career is something we can touch on a little bit as well, because it was very dependent on the fact that cricket was available on terrestrial television. Yeah. Because you hadn't played much at school. No. You had a brother who had played. Yeah, you felt that. you were told. Uh, this is the tragic part of the tale. You were told by a PE teacher. No, 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 no. It was, it was, it was, so, so I, 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 I hated sport. That's kind of how I defined myself. I was the person who hated sport, um, and I, I never had anything to do with it. My father loved sport. He loved football. He loved cricket. And one day he had to kind of look after me because I think my mother was in hospital or something. Uh, and so his, his admirable approach to childcare was to make me sit down and watch a test match. And I really objected to this, but he said, no, just trust me, you know, I'll just try and talk you through it. And it so happened that the test match that he talked me through was the test match England-Australia at Headingley in 1981, <laughs> which turned out to be the most exciting mm. test match, you know, one of the most exciting test matches of all time. And I, I, I was completely hooked. And he said, well, you know, you've got to understand that not every test match is like that. And then Edgebuster in 81, it was exactly the same. And then Old Trafford. And by the end of it, I was so, I, I was so hooked that um, not even um, England's tour to India in 1981-82, um, which I, I think was voted the most boring you test are. series of all time, could put me off. Um, but, I went, but, but I went, yeah, uh, yeah so I, I, I asked the PE teacher when I, you know, at the beginning of, of the, the following summer and said I wanted to take up cricket and he laughed in my face. But you and modelled... So every time I tweet that six out... <laughs> but you modelled yourself. <laughs> uh, I mean, what, what you had to model yourself on was a cricketer on television. Yeah. That was Ian Bowden. Which, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah, I modelled myself which on Which one? <laughs> I was Did batting you? at the other end when Tom hit his... <coughs> edged... Uh, hit his six. <laughs> I think I was. I know. I sometimes I've, I've seen it so often. I, maybe I wasn't. Maybe even you weren't playing. even there. I feel I was there. <laughs> I don't think you were, Sebastian. I was there. I definitely was there. Yeah, I you, think were, you were there. there. You were there. I think that I was. was Matthew Parker. Are you sure? Mm. Okay. Mm. Maybe I just—it's so deep in my false memory. Unconscious. Sense, yeah, yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? It is. But that's the <laughs> magic of myth making. Yeah. Do you think they've got any questions to ask? Um, I don't know. Where, where, where are we with time? Are we? Should we throw it open to yes. the audience? Questions? Yeah, I think I, well, yeah, I think we're we're now at a point where we can, if anyone has any questions, um, please shout up now. Oh, okay, we've got the first one over there I can see. Hello. Mm -hmm. How difficult from a literary perspective How difficult from a literary perspective is it to distinguish between the sort of rose tinted world of English cricket? and the rather more hard-nosed profession of Yorkshire cricket. Oh. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, Yorkshire cricket well, so, stands Well, so I apart. remember, um, <coughs> after I, got, I suddenly got into cricket, my father had all kinds of, of books on every aspect of sport, and he had loads by Michael Parkinson, who was always going on about exactly this theme. <coughs> and so I, I took a deep dislike to Yorkshire cricket as a, <laughs> as a result of that. Um, I wish them nothing but harm, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's a singularity. No, it it of made me feel southern, is yeah, what it did. It does, I, I'd it does, never yeah. realised until I read uh, Michael Parkinson on, um, you know, Barnsley and, and 
Bramall Lane and Headingley and everything, that I was a southerner. And it was a terrible shock. Um, I think if you're from the south, I mean, I was certainly grow when I was growing up and playing, you were terrified of playing any northern team because they had that reputation. And again, this is a big kind of talking area well, it was in like the game. Against the any, anyone I mean, from the West Indies. Yeah. Yeah. You'd, you'd immediately goes terrified of it, and then Australia. So, yeah. Yeah. But it's a class thing, it's, you know, yeah. um, beyond a boundary, you know, this whole kind of Marxist idea that, you know, um, actually, and a guy, just, a guy called Duncan Stone just written a very good book, or very interesting book, about this subject, and saying that actually cricket had two paths to take, and, it, and at, what it chose was to romanticise the southern version of the game, and ignore the gritty northern league version of the game. I'm not sure that's true, though. I'm not sure I, it's true, but that's the argument. I, because what I got reading those Michael Parkinson books was a, a very, very strong sense of self-mythologisation. I mean, yes. I didn't think of it at the time because yeah. I was 13, but um, I, I looking back at it, I really playing liked. against um, West Indians, where you, you sometimes you'd find they were the, the pro, they were visiting from the West Indies for a season, and you'd find they were the pro at Exeter or wherever it was. And, you know, you might have a rather torrid time, but after it was in the pub, you'd say, um, we've got another game on Friday. <laughs> I don't know if you're free. <laughs> and remarkably, they often would. In fact, we once got Keith Arthurton to play for us. Did you? A very mm. sort of villagey tour um, against a Budley Salterton in Dublin. <laughs> we'd, we'd, um, we'd lost against them um, heavily the year before, and we were determined to exact revenge. <laughs> and the guy who ran our team was a bit of a wide boy. He, was, he worked in horse racing. And he, he approached Arthurton, who was playing at that time for the West Indies. He, he'd lost the number three slot to Brian Lara, but hey, you know, these things mm. happen. Uh, and he was playing in the Birmingham Leagues, and he said, you know, fancy a game down in Devon. And, <laughs> and he came. He came. My brother yeah. got him out. Well, <laughs> I thought you were going to take us seamlessly into the Sobers anecdote, which you haven't oh, yet told. Yeah, well... Um, I grew up in the, I was a child in the 60s and, you know, I loved the West Indies. They were my favourite team. And they came over in, I think, 65, Gary Sobers, Frank Worrell, Wes Hall, Charlie Griffiths, Basil Butcher, Conrad Humble. I, I won't go through the whole team, but they were just wonderful. It was a very exciting, 63, I think it was. It was a very exciting series. And Gary Sobers became my absolute all-time hero. I loved the way he bowled his quick stuff with his left arm sort of trailing out behind him as he came in and then whipping over. I loved his batting, his fluidity. I loved everything about him, particularly his sort of his casual grace and the way he, he played the game. And then when I was a journalist, I, I was playing quite a lot of cricket. And for some reason, I got invited to play against an old Barbados team in Staffordshire. Uh, I was playing for the, for the Houses of Parliament. I can't think why. I must, have, <laughs> I must have interviewed a politician. And we had a reasonably good team, slightly stiffened up. Dean Headley played for us. And we had a couple of sort of minor county players. But the, the old Barbadian team were you know, quite old, except apart from Joel Garner, who only, only <laughs> retired one year before. <laughs> and our captain said to me, oh, Sebastian, I gather you're an opening batsman. I said, bloody hell, I'm absolutely <laughs> <What>? not. <laughs> I was hid in the pavilion and sort of strapped a towel around my ribs. But luckily I was put in at five. And by this time, Garner was off, having bowled up six overs, five maidens, two for one or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Gary Sobers put himself on to bowl. And I was facing, oh, my God, this is, just, this is a dream. This is beyond, beyond fantasy. And he came up and I, he bowled slow out of a bit, bit of wrist spin over bowling left arm over. And I thought... As I sort of prodded forward, I thought, God, this thing might spit or do anything. And I it didn't do very much, actually. So I played a couple of forward defensives. And it felt that there was a kind of les majesté about it. I shouldn't, shouldn't really be a 
putting the willow on a ball mm. bowled by this god. But anyway, the fourth ball, he dropped one a bit short. And mm. I had a look at it and I thought, I shouldn't, should I? I think, oh, what the hell. <laughs> so I leant back and swatted it over square leg for four. So um, I say swatted, it was a bit of a top edge, actually. But anyway, there, there, we don't need to go into the details. But it was the most wonderful moment. And he was so nice and such a fantastically charming man. And afterwards, there was a lot of sort of teasing. Of course, it rained. Of course, it rained. It's England, it rained. They were all teasing Wes Hall, who, had, who was keeping wicket. He wasn't bowling fast anymore. But it was certainly probably greatest moment of my life. So I what know. did you score? <laughs> I think I scored about 12 or something. Did you get any more runs off him? Maybe a single or something. I can't remember. Mm. Uh, it was yeah. after, the, after the four it was. Yeah, all. yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Might as well stop the game. Yeah. Anyone else? Oh, I think there's a microphone coming. No, I can talk quite loudly. <laughs> I'm not very good with these. Um, uh, you said you don't follow county cricket anymore. I, I'm a bit nerdy, so I still do. And I just noticed that Alistair Cook has now scored 100 in, in both innings in his last match. Is it time to bring Alistair Cook back to open the batting for England? Yes, well, when I say I don't follow it, I, I had followed that, actually. <laughs> so I guess I follow it a bit. Um, John, you, John well, knows much more about it, this. No, so not case. I mean, clearly he's one of the best, uh, probably the best opening batsman in the country. But there's a bit of this kind of romantic storytelling again to touch on one of the themes of the evening that Cook had this farewell that so few sportsmen have you know so few cricketers get to choose their own ending and Cook just had this day out of you know heaven at the oval where he scored a hundred and the sun shone and you know the crowd stood and I think you'd you'd have to have an incredibly strong character to say well I'll come back you know I'll I'll risk that not being my ending and I think I don't I, I don't know professional sportsmen, professional cricketers and professional batsmen think entirely differently to you know, most people. So I, I couldn't say what was in his head, but that's what would be in my head. If we want to win the Test match, you, you'd pick him. You'd pick Absolutely. him, yeah. But, yeah. I mean, he's on 72 hundreds at yeah. the moment. I mean, how many, can he get to the... Can he get to 100? Can he join the pantheon of my boyhood hero, Dennis Amis? Yeah, he did. You, know, you say you, 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 you put your how you wanted to play based on what you saw on TV. When Dennis Amos came back in, in, nine, in 1976 and scored that yeah. 203 Stood square against the West Indies, yeah. and he moved back and across yeah. to expose his leg stump, yeah. I started doing that to such an extent that the bowlers stopped in their run-up and pissed themselves laughing because <laughs> I was moving so much in the crease. Yeah. You know, so, you know, I'm, I'm all for bringing him back. I mean, th there is a kind of inherent romance in the story of people who do come back. So well, Tom Graveney or... Um, yeah, I suppose there is, but uh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, again, yeah... Or you boycott. Know, I mean, yeah. you know, boycott's return. Well, <laughs> do, you know, do you know anything about boycott, John? <laughs> <laughs> his, uh, his return was sensitive. Yeah, yeah. Well, both of them back from his... Yeah, but I mean, this was kind of mid-career, wasn't it? This was, I mean, how old's Cook, you know? I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the 7200s. It's a hell of a long way to get to 100, but whether anyone, you know, that 100-100s is always the great mark of batsmanship. And Ramprakash was the last man to, to get there and was always thought to be he will be the last person to get there just because of the nature of cricket. How many did Hicks score? He got 114, something like that. Yeah. Well, I think more than that, wasn't it? Maybe anyone? Oh, no, maybe Ramprakash got 114. Yeah. Hick got me. Matt Singer. Matt Ward. I think he got something like 145. Did it more than that? Yeah. No. The <laughs> interesting and, thing was, Gary, was yeah. uh, <laughs> with the Wisdom Almanac that's just come out has actually robbed WG of 200s and awarded two to Hobbs, who didn't need them anyway. Mm. So he's up to 199. But, uh, 
by the by. The Night Watchman podcast is brought to you by Rathbones Investment Management for individuals, charities and financial advisors. We couldn't do it without them, so please head over to rathbones.com to find out more about what they do. Uh, Sebastian mentioned um, Homer, and I know, Tom, you've translated uh, Herodotus. Do you see um, a connection between an interest in classics and an obsession in, about cricket? <laughs> I mean, there may be a kind of element of the... Uh, Sebastian's used the word gladiatorial. Um, it, it, it may be that uh, cricket, like a lot of sport, um, it provides a, a, a focus for um, violence that is no longer kind of sanctioned within our, our culture and society. Uh, and obviously classics is all about the violence. Lots, lots, you get lots and lots of violence. Um, and I wonder whether that, that is a part of it, whether if you have an interest in Achilles and Hector dueling outside the walls of Troy, whether you're going to be interested in um, Dennis Lilly uh, and Thompson uh, bowling at England batsmen and cracking their abdominal protectors. Um, <laughs> I don't know. But, 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 but I mean, I kind of, on, 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 when, uh, when the lockdown happened and um, we were robbed of our, uh, of our season, um, we started playing book cricket, and I'm not entirely sure what the rules are, but basically you choose a team, and um, the presiding, David Owen, the um, former Financial Times uh, sports editor, was the presiding genius. So very like fate, or Zeus, kind of holding up the scales and weighing the heroes at, at, at Troy. Um, and it was notable, the, um, you know, we, we, I certainly, I chose a team of Greek gods, um, Artemis, Brilliant batsman, turned out. <laughs> Sorry, batter, I should say. Uh, then, we, then I had the Norse gods, um, and Sebastian had a succession of literary teams. You had um, yeah, Jane Austen. Uh, Jane, and, Austen uh, yeah. um, Jane Austen, yeah. Jane Austen, yeah. Mr. Knightley made a few, but um, Fanny Price was our surprise star. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so. She bowled sort of wobblers in the middle, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so I think uh, the, perhaps the element of, of, of fantasy that. <laughs> It's always there, kind of hovering. John, what was your team? Uh, <laughs> my team was a, a team of hair metal uh, musicians. <laughs> so it was hardly on the same level as these other guys. No, it wasn't. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, yeah, as you say, that was the, that was the fates, wasn't it? Yeah. Was there anyone? Oh, hello. What's your, each of your favourite cricket-related books? Oh, that's that, yeah. Good, yeah. Uh, it was what, what is each of our favourite cricket or cricket-related book? Okay, I think Sebastian should go first on that. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, 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 I'm still thinking. Let me think, let me think. Um, well, do you know, the, the one that I'm most... Tom, you made a list when you came the, in. No, the, the, there were two that I, I, I enjoyed. I mean, I don't think they're in any way the greatest or the best, but the ones that I, I enjoyed... And they were both, unsurprisingly, books that I read in that summer of 81, where cricket just seemed like heaven. It seemed like the most important thing that I'd ever discovered. Um, and one of them was um, Tales from the Long Room. Um, I don't know if anybody here has read it, but it was a kind of comedy uh, of a, a harumphing Daily Telegraph reading colonel um, who, who, who saw everything through the prism of cricket. Um, so, for instance, in, in this version, Queen Victoria is a very, very promising 
right arm fast medium bowler and who and on her honeymoon with Prince Albert humiliates him in the nets and so he gets her pregnant non-stop to stop her cricket career uh, and this was a kind of example of the humour which I found hilarious at the age of 13 so I absolutely adored that uh, and also he was a Somerset supporter which I was so it was all about you know kind of comic representations of both them and Richards and so on they were they were kind of there and the other one was um, a selection of Patrick Eager's photographs sports photographs from the summer of 81 <laughs> which um, I, I looked at so often that, that the whole book just fell to pieces so I still have it kind of sellotaped together but purely based on the number of times that I looked at it, it would have to be that one. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm excluding, obviously, absolute classics. Of the, you know, there's no CLR James or whatever. But those were the two that I have most loved. And I, I think it's really telling that they were the ones that I, you know, I read when I first felt the kind yeah. of the fever rush of love for cricket. Um, yes, Tales from the Wrong... Peter Tinniswood, right? Peter Tinniswood, yeah. yeah. Who was a Lancastrian. And uh, it's, very, it's very funny. I love that, too. He's particularly obsessed by a very boring Lancastrian opener called Winston Place. Remember that? <laughs> yes. um, and his, his wife recited... The lady wife. The lady the wife reminds him slightly of Winston Place. The big will start. I think the book that beguiled me... Well, I, I had measles as a child. Someone gave me a book. I think it was, it was by Don Bradman. It was an autobiography. I think it was just called My Book. Yeah, yeah I think it was. was it? I think it was called My Autobiography, maybe. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. And... It was quite bonkers, as indeed he was, obsessive. And there was all the stuff with the cr hitting a ball against the water tank with a, <laughs> with a cricket stump again and again. But if you're slightly feverish with measles, <laughs> I mean, it, it was quite good. And then these, you know, going on into Woodford and, Pons Woodford and Ponsford and McCartney and McCabe and all these Titanic scores piling up. And, and that made a very big impression on me. I thought, gosh, we won't see someone like that again, thank God. <laughs> Um, I was probably, well, again, going to childhood, the immortal, the Barry Richards story, which is <laughs> Barry Richards' autobiography, which was ghostwritten by Martin Tyler, the football commentator. Really? No one really knows why. <laughs> um, but, I, yeah, it was... A, and, and the other one, I suppose, which isn't... A, it's, it's sort of literary in its way. It's by Peter Roebuck, who oh, yeah. a lot of people will remember. Um, it was his diary of a 1983 season, it's called It Never Rains. It is a diary of the season. And why it meant so much was my sort of failing attempts to, to play cricket. He sort of, it, it's the season when Roebuck starts to do quite well. And he starts to be talked about as a possible England player. And his form tails off the minute that happens. And he's sort of self-aware enough to realise that the reason for that is that he doesn't want it. He doesn't want to play for England. Although his life has been set up for him to do that, and his parents have encouraged him, he went to Millfield, and, uh, and he was encouraged there, and he was thought of as something as, you know, a potential England opening bat. And I think that notion that, it, you know, it was all right not to want it really kind of chimed with me. And, and, and the, the, it, the diary sort of, it doesn't, it doesn't climax, but in the middle of August, he gets to the middle of August, and he's done something for every day and there's just a day in August where he puts no entry, where his depression has kind of reached its lowest point. And I think that was the thought where I thought, okay, did, I understand cricket now. Did you not want to play now. for England, John? No, I did. did, I did. Didn't want it enough, did I you? Did, I did, yeah, well, this is what the book was about, you know. I did, yeah. Could you get it just by wanting it enough? But he's a fabulous writer, much better yeah. writer than he was a player, and he was quite a player. So. And were, were, were there intimations in that of what was to come, the, the, the bust up with 
Batham and Richards Not and the, really and the horrible there's kind a, of There's a tremendous end. bit at the start where he writes about, his big mate was Vic Marks, and there's, they, sort of, they start the season, and Vic, Mark turn, Vic Marks turns up slightly late for some reason, and he's completely delighted, but Roebuck's sick in the dressing room before one of the first games, and he looks across and he sees Botham and Richards in their corner, and they're just kind of laughing and joking and, you know, as you were saying earlier, taking the piss in the way that, that professional cricketers do. And Roebuck just looks at them and goes, I could never be that. You know, I could never be that confident. I could never be that at ease in a professional cricket situation. And he was pointing out the differences, not, not just in character, but in ability between these players. You know, So I think, yeah, he was always aware, aware that, yeah. you know, he was not who they were. Because, I mean, cricket can be genuinely and properly unbelievably depressing. Yeah, it is, yeah. I mean, it's a bit of a downer. That's Graham Swan. It is. To end on an up note, yeah. let me reassure you that John Hutton's private life is not nearly as dark as Peter Roebuck's. <laughs> and thanks to you for listening. If you've enjoyed it, then do spread the word. And if you're feeling especially kind, then why not leave us a review on your podcast app? To find out more about The Night Watchman, visit www.thenightwatchman.net. The Night Watchman podcast is written and hosted by John Houghton, produced and edited by James Wallace.